Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Well, thank you for coming to Church 214 this morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Isaac. Uh, I'm a member of the teaching team, vision team. Leadership team, worship team, lots of teams. So, yeah, all the teams. Well, we are continuing in our Revelation series. I believe this is week 14, I think. 15, sorry, I count really well. I do, I do good at math. This is week 15. Uh, and last week, Katie did an amazing job uh, preaching through chapter 7, and there's also some chapter 14 in there. And that was one of these anchoring passages. For those of you that haven't been with us, we're, we're going through the book of Revelation, and Revelation is not a chronological book. Uh, there's a series of, of, of windows that we're looking into, into the, into the spiritual world and into the physical world. And so we're breaking up Revelation with these anchoring passages, these things that anchor us in, in the truest reality, the realest reality, and we're breaking those up with uh, these kind of judgment passages that have this weird imagery and people don't really like to talk about them because they're uncomfortable, etc. So Katie got one of the anchoring passages last week. And the, these anchoring passages are supposed to anchor our spirits in the ultimate reality that Jesus wins, right? And our destiny is to rule and reign with him far above all powers and principalities. And the hope is that as we as we fix our eyes on that reality, as we cement ourselves in, in that ultimate victory, that we would be emboldened to walk that out now. Because it's not just a future victory, it's a current victory. It's not just a future state of victory, it's a current victory. And so the hope is that we, we walk out the boldness that should come when we anchor ourselves in the victory of Jesus but today is not one of those feel-good anchoring passage days. <laughs> At least not until the end. I promise we'll get there. There's always good news. Thank you. Yes, Craig, there's always good news. So there will be good news, I promise, but you do have to choose the good news. I'm going to get off track if I do that. So, never mind. So today is one of those cataclysmic judgment passages about God's wrath. And let's be honest, who in here gets uncomfortable when we talk about God's wrath? Right? You can participate in church. You can raise your hand. Who in here, even if you've been a Christian for your entire life, who in here has had a season where you struggled with the concept of how could a loving God seem so violent? I struggled with that for probably a year or two. Like, really wrestling with, okay, what does that look like? Yes, I know God is holy, and, and I understand that because of that holiness, there's a standard that must be met in order to be with him, correct? And the cross covers that, but, but, but even then, how could that God, how could that loving God seem so violent and full of wrath? And this is often why people in the church and especially people outside of the church would look at passages like this. We're going to be in chapter 8, chapter 9, and a little bit in chapter 11. They would look at judgment passages like this or the Old Testament especially, and they would say, how could you ever claim that you serve a loving God when he is so violent? 
And so what I want to do for a little bit this morning before we actually dig into the text is I want to kind of develop this lens that we need to look at the wrath of God through in order to properly understand what this passage is trying to communicate. And in order to help you with that question, both for yourself and if you're defending the faith with somebody else that says, I, I can't serve a God like that. He just, he kills people and, you know, there's all these cataclysmic events and things like that. Hopefully this can help you a little bit. So that, that's what we're going to do for just a little bit here. And what I want to pose to you this morning is that true love, real love, requires the capacity for great wrath. Real love. Real love requires the capacity for great wrath. For instance, would you say that I love my family if I just like sat on the couch, somebody breaks into my house and I, instead of trying to help my family, I just sit on the couch and watch my family be brutalized, right? Could you even come up with an argument that says that I love my family? No. Real love requires the capacity for great wrath. Let me tell you something. If you come and try and hurt my family, you can house, car, I don't care. You come and hurt what I really love, my wrath will be immediate, it will be incredibly violent, and it will be complete. It will be final. You will no longer be breathing if you try and hurt my family. God's wrath is often patient. Oftentimes it is not complete. He allows chances for repentance, even at the end, even in the passages that we're going to read today. True love requires the capacity, the capability of great wrath. And so wrath is generated from love. Real just wrath is generated, it comes out of love. If you didn't actually love something, then you're probably not going to have wrath against something. Does that make sense? So wrath is generated from love, and wrath is released because of mercy. Wrath is released because of mercy. For instance, again, back to my family analogy. My wrath would be released against anybody that's coming against my family because I have mercy on the suffering that my family is currently going through. Wrath is released because of mercy. God is the same way. The objects of God's wrath in the Bible are enemies of his people. They are coming against his family seeking to destroy them. And so it is the mercy of God that releases wrath on his enemies. It's mercy for the people that he loves that are a part of his family. But he also has wrath on his, he also has mercy on his enemies. Why? Let me, let me specify that. He has mercy on his human enemies. His spiritual enemies don't get a chance to repent. There is no mercy for them. He has mercy on his human enemies because his complete wrath is often delayed. 
His complete wrath is delayed. He allows for repentance. And what happens when, when God unleashes his wrath on his enemies? I know that this is a, a complex concept, but just work with me here. When God releases his wrath on his enemies and on the enemies of his family, he's, he's, he's releasing his mercy over his family to protect them from the, en- from the enemies that are coming against them, that are trying to hurt them. He is also releasing wrath on his enemies and simultaneously releasing mercy on his enemies. And we'll get to that, we'll get to this in this passage, because oftentimes in the wrath of God, the incomplete wrath of God, where they're not destroyed, what God is doing is he is breaking down the the systems and the structures and the demonic ideologies that we have built up in our lives. He's revealing those things by crushing them so that we can open our eyes to the fact, hopefully open our eyes to the fact, if our hearts are soft, that what what we have been serving was actually meant for our destruction, not for our benefit. And so God is merciful as he releases his wrath on his enemies to destroy the the structures and the demonic ideologies that they have been following, to reveal to them and show them that what they were serving was actually meant for their destruction, not for their benefit. And allow them the chance to repent. So there's always mercy in God's wrath. And so this is the lens that I want us to look through this morning as we go through these passages, as we talk about God's judgment on his enemies in in chapter 8 and 9 and in 11. We should look through this lens that that God's wrath is actually merciful. There's an element of mercy in his wrath. Make sense? Kind of? We'll flesh it out more, I promise. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Revelation that reveals just so many things about your character. So many things about who you are and your plans for us. And your great patience and love and mercy towards us. God, thank you for your patience because at one time I was an enemy of you. Thank you for withholding your complete wrath because at one time I was your enemy, but you called me by your grace to the cross. The cross that saves. The blood that redeems and heals. So God, would you work in our hearts this morning as we approach your word? God, would we see the love and the mercy in your heart as you release your wrath on your enemies. And would it change us? Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do and and change our hearts. Do the work of regeneration in us and make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a couple reminders. As we dig into Revelation, remember Revelation is is full of imagery, especially this apocalyptic literature. Basically, everything that we're reading today is just full of imagery. And so when we read passages like this, we need to remember that everything is important and almost nothing is literal. Okay? Everything is important, 
Almost nothing is literal. And so it helps us to think bigger than just what the words actually say. And oftentimes what this imagery is doing is it's actually making a theological statement. It's making a theological statement against God's enemies, against the, the powers and principalities and rebellious spiritual beings that have come against him, against the, the human systems that we have set up against God. That's what's going on here. We make, it makes theological statements. And so as we, as we read this imagery, we need to think bigger. That prevents us from thinking about helicopters and asteroid hits and all of these things. Because Revelation what was not meant to reveal specific events to us in the future. It's not a crystal ball. Revelation is supposed to anchor us in, in, a, in a reality that God has a plan, that God uh, has reserved his people, and that God also judges his enemies. There will be a time when God comes and judges his enemies. That's what this is supposed to communicate. And lastly, remember that Revelation is supposed to awaken us to reality. It's supposed to anchor us in victory and ignite us to action. Revelation anchors us in victory, sorry, awakens us to reality, anchors us in victory, and ignites us to action. So with that, we're going to read the seven trumpet judgments this morning. Again, it's just kind of an overarching idea. The trumpets are ultimately about the destruction of world systems that are hostile to God and the demonic forces that are associated with them. That's what the seven trumpets are about. So that's another lens that we can look through as we read these passages. And the imagery here is mostly uh, imagery in reference to Egypt and Babylon. And the reason for that is because Egypt and Babylon are the archetypes of chaos and hostility and rebellion against Yahweh in the Old Testament. Egypt and Babylon were the primary enemies, the primary um, archetypes of chaos in the Old Testament. And so a lot of this imagery is a callback to imagery against Egypt and Babylon. All right? So we're going to start in in chapter 8, and it's verses 16 through 13. And again, this is a polemic. It's a direct shot against Egypt and Babylon. Yahweh is displaying his sovereignty over nature, over governments, and over systems, and over the the inferior gods that those systems serve. That's what chapter 8 is about. And then chapter 9 displays his control over the demonic forces of evil. All right, so that's where we're going. Got it? Cool. So let's start with chapter 8, verse 6 through 7. And it's not going to be, it's not going to be on the screens because I'm, I'm basically just going to camp here the whole time. So go ahead and turn there yourself. And then when I diverge from this, that will be on the screen. Okay, so just go ahead and turn to Revelation 8 and you'll be safe. You'll stay there for a while. Okay, so Revelation 8, verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burnt up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. All right, stop. Let's break down that first trumpet. Does that sound familiar to anybody? If we're thinking about the context of Egypt and Babylon, does that sound familiar to anyone in reference to Egypt and Babylon? Yes, it should. Because it's, it is literally like word for word some of the plagues that occurred in Egypt. As God was judging his enemy Egypt, this is what happened. 
So what this is not trying to tell you is that we should be looking for this specific event in the future where there's blood and fire and hail that rains down on the earth. Might that happen? Sure. Do I care? Not really, because that's not what this is trying to communicate. This is trying to communicate that God judged his enemies in the past, and he will judge them in the future. And so let's just read where, this, where, where that passage comes from, Exodus 9, 23 through 26. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down on the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continuously in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as had never been seen in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant from the field and broke every tree of the field. Remember when I said that God's wrath is merciful and often not complete. What does it say here in verse 7? And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up and a third of the green grass was burned up. God is leaving room for repentance. He is breaking down these demonic systems and revealing, trying to reveal to the eyes of his human enemies that the systems that they have been serving are actually meant for their destruction, not for their good. That's what he's doing here. Let's go on to verse 8. And the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, if anyone has had a teaching on Revelation before, probably what you have heard is that that's obviously a comet or some sort of asteroid hit that's going to come in the future and, you know, land in the sea and, you know, a, a third of all the fish is, you know, that's going to die, etc. Might that happen? Sure. Do I really care? Not really. Because guess what? If it does, it's like, oh, okay, like it happened. It's pretty clear what's going on here, right? But again, that's not what this passage is trying to communicate. What it's actually communicating, it's a callback for a judgment against Babylon. Let's read Jeremiah 51, 24 through 25. I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain. So the imagery here is, is, is this mountain is being equated with, with the evil system of Babylon, the evil government of Babylon that has come against Zion, and now Yahweh is coming against Babylon. And I will stretch out, O, o destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. Verse 8 says, Behold, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Again, this is a callback to God's judgment against his enemies in the past, and he will judge them in the future. That's what that passage is about. This is much more a theological statement than a physical one. Understand? Good. All right, let's, let's read, uh, let's go a little bit faster here. Let's read verse 10 through 12. 
This is a series of a couple of trumpets. And the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of this star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. And the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Again with this third imagery. God's wrath is not yet complete. He is allowing space for repentance on his human enemies. Now, when it comes to the imagery here, this imagery is again a callback to the plagues against Egypt. Remember that when, the, when one of the first plagues was Moses stretched out his staff over the river, the Nile River, and, and the river became blood, and it says that all the pools and all the springs and all the fresh water also became blood. That's exactly what's happening here. And in Exodus, it tells us that that water became undrinkable and people died because they couldn't drink the water anymore. It was blood. All of the fresh water was gone. Additionally, there's a, there's a plague against Egypt where the sun, moon, and stars are dimmed, especially the sun. Right? And so this is a physical judgment on a physical system of rebellion against Yahweh. But it's also a judgment against the spiritual forces behind those systems. Starting off with that, the falling star imagery that's referenced here in verse 10 is almost always referring to the judgment of a rebellious spiritual being. So when it says there was a falling star from heaven, let's see, let's just read that here. Verse 10, and a third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. That's often in reference to, whenever you hear that imagery, that's in reference to a rebellious spiritual being that is being judged and cast down to the earth. So that's exactly what's happening here. God is judging both the physical, the rivers and the streams, the sun, the moon and the stars. He's also judging the spiritual rebellion against him. Additionally, in Egypt and in Babylon, both the rivers and the springs and the fresh water and the sun and moon and stars were either venerated as gods themselves or had powerful gods in control over them. And so this is a shot. So Yahweh is taking a shot against those demonic powers because they considered themselves gods. They considered themselves in control of these things. And some of, the, some of them were even the most powerful gods or the highest gods in their religious systems, especially the sun and the moon. And yet here, Yahweh is showing that he is sovereign over them. They are not in control. They're not in control of the sun. They're not in control of the moon or the stars or the rivers or any fresh water. Yahweh's in control. All right, verse 13. This one's pretty quick and it's kind of fun. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. All right, what's up with the eagle? Right, is it just like some, you know, you know, John's kind of in, in this trance having this vision. And so like he just 
you know, sees this eagle flying overhead and the eagle talks? Is that what's going on here? Sure, maybe. Like, that's fine. However, both in Greek and Roman mythology, eagles were considered the messengers of Zeus. Eagles did the bidding of Zeus. In Roman mythology, it's Jupiter. It's the same God, same thing. And yet here, the angel seems to be doing the bidding of Yahweh, not Zeus. Again, Yahweh reigns supreme. Not only is God taking a shot against the gods themselves that are rebellious against him, he's even taking a shot against the messengers of the gods and says, no, 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 I control everything. Everything is underneath my feet, not yours. All right, so that's chapter 8. That's the first four trumpets. Remember, that's about the judgment of, of the physical the physical earth, it's physical judgment. It's judgment against uh, demonic governments and systems that, have, that people have set up and the demonic powers that support those governments and systems. Chapter 9 displays his control over demonic forces of evil directly. So let's read just a little bit of chapter 9. Just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it all. But we're going to read some. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet... And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from its shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given the power like the power of scorpions on the earth. That's enough. We can stop there for a second. So remember when I was just talking about the fact that Whenever there's kind of that fallen star imagery, it's, it's normally a rebellious spiritual being that is being judged by God. I said mostly because here it's a little different. So there's, there's debate among scholars about whether the, the angel that has the key to the bottomless pit is a good angel or an evil angel. But I think the best answer here is, is clear, and it's something that we've talked about quite a bit. Who holds the keys? Who holds the keys to, to death and Hades? Who holds the keys to the bottomless pit? Who, who went down into the abyss to actually steal those keys and take them back? Who now has control so, so that any door that he opens, no one can shut? And any door that he shuts, no one can open? So I think the best interpretation here is that this is actually a, a, an angel that is serving God. And God said, all right, it's time. Here's your key. Go release these, uh, we're going to get there, but these spiritual entities to come onto the earth and torment the human enemies. Only he has the authority to release and to bind. All right, and then we get into some of this imagery of what these locusts actually look like. I'm not going to go through all of it. And in the appearance, the locusts were horses prepared for battle, and on their heads looked like crowns. They had human faces, women's hair, lion's teeth, breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of chariots, and they had tails with stings like scorpions, with the power to hurt people for five months in their tails. Let's actually go down even further into the, into the sixth trumpet. 
And I heard the voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound by the great river Euphrates. And so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day of the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind and the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And then John describes the way that he saw this army. And the riders were breastplates of the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. The heads of the horses looked like lions and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And the horses had tails like serpents' tails and by means, or like serpents' heads, and by means of those tails they wound. And then let's read verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their, sor- their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. It's pretty clear in verse 20 that God's intent here on allowing these things to happen is so that people would turn to him. Remember, even in God's wrath, he is merciful. God is trying to reveal to these people that the systems and the things that they had been serving are actually meant to torment them and to destroy them, not to give them life. And so Yahweh's being merciful in, in crushing those systems and in revealing that the demonic principalities behind them are actually trying to hurt them. That's what's happening here. And the reason why I'm saying that the locusts and the horses are demonic spiritual entities is because, um, again, we're not supposed to read Revelation literally. We're supposed to take these things very important. They are important, but it is not literal. And there is a litany of, of symbolic imagery in the Old Testament and in extra-biblical texts and, and other religious texts that point to the fact that what's being portrayed here is actually demonic entities, and it's not real locusts with women's hair and, you know, scorpions' tails or real horses that actually have lions' heads and serpents', and serpents heads on their tails. That's not what's, what's going on here. And the scholarly language for that is these, this is hybridized theriomorphic figures. You can go look that up if you want to. That's what this is called. This imagery is called hybridized stereomorphic figures. And it's commonly used to portray the, the twistedness and the garishness of evil spiritual entities. And it's common in the Bible, and it's common in other religious texts, and in, and in lots of literature in the ancient Near East. They use this same sort of idea that when they're trying to portray these evil spiritual beings, they do so in a way that makes them look twisted and, and garish and nasty and evil. So that's what's going on here. But not just that, but John is also piecing some of this imagery together from the Old Testament. And so it's kind of a a conglomerate of imagery that represents both human and demonic entities that are hostile to Yahweh. I'm not going to read any of them, but just a handful of them are Isaiah 14, Exodus 10, Deuteronomy 28, Joel 1 and 2, Job uh, 39, Nahum 17, Jeremiah 51, Isaiah 5, Ezekiel 38, Psalm 68, and Daniel 7. Right, so anybody, if, if, you've, if you've, I don't want to disparage anybody, but if you've ever had teaching on Revelation or you have some books about Revelation of the end times and they don't talk about the Old Testament 
antecedents for this imagery, it's probably trash. This is so much deeper and so much bigger than just trying to predict and trying to, to say, oh, well, like, in the end, like, we're actually going to see all these, like, weird locust things running around, and they're going to be stinging people for five months, and they're not going to die, and then there's going to be these horses with, with lion's heads, and there's going to be fire coming out of their mouth and consuming people. If that happens, okay, fine, then, we, then it's pretty clear what's going on. Like, we're not going to be guessing, but that's not what Revelation is trying to portray here. What's actually happening here is that God is releasing all of these evil spiritual beings in hopes that mankind would realize that nothing else will save them, right? That the systems that they have been serving, the demonic entities that support the systems that they have been serving are not trying to save them. They're not trying to love them. They're not trying to help them. They are actually, their actual design is to torment them. So God is allowing them to repent of that and join the, the, the good team, join the right side. That's what's happening here. And so these, these uh, spiritual entities have been restricted from operating on the earth for this final time. The other reason why God is releasing these spiritual uh, enemies, these spiritual entities, is that he is preparing the playing field. He's preparing the chessboard for the great and final battle when his wrath will be complete. He is bringing everybody back onto the playing field so in the end he can just wipe them all out. That's what happens from the sword that comes from his mouth. That's, what, that's how it goes down. And so God is bringing all of these chips back onto the playing field and saying, I'm preparing for something. I'm preparing for the final judgment, the, the day of the great battle when everything will be made new, when I will finally and completely eliminate all of my enemies and anything in rebellion against me so that those who are part of my family can truly flourish. That's what's happening here. Yahweh's playing the greatest game of chess that there ever was. But again, verse 20 tells us that even in the midst of Yahweh being merciful and revealing that these entities are actually out to harm them and not help them, even in the midst of that, they harden their hearts. They keep serving those demonic gods. They keep serving idols. They keep serving the desires of their own flesh. So the question is, how do you respond to hardship? How do you respond when there is an idol in your life and that idol gets crushed? Because for the true believer, that leads us to repentance, to sanctification. It's still painful. But it leads you to the Lord and not away from him. For those who are not part of his family, it hardens their hearts to say, even though my idol was crushed, I will still serve it. Even though the desires of my heart are killing me and tormenting me, I will still submit to them and not to Yahweh. This is the message of the first six trumpets. God is breaking down and destroying and judging the spiritual forces of rebellion against him, the physical forces of rebellion against him, 
and the governments and systems that humans have set up against Yahweh that are supported by those demonic forces. He's crushing it all. That's what the first six trumpets are about. But what about the seventh trumpet? For that, we have to turn to chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord our God Almighty who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. I love that last verse. The time has come for, the destroy, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdoms of our God. This is why you can't read, read Revelation chronologically. We still have 11, like at this point, we're in chapter 11. We have 11 more chapters to go. We haven't even gotten into the seven bowls and everything else like that. But, but what, is, what is being stated here is that, no, the kingdom of God has come. This is a window into the future destiny of, of, of the family of God. And in verse 17, it says, And we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Where's the who is to come? That we've seen in the rest of Revelation. He is the God who is and who was. But he is not to come because he's here. He has taken his great power and he has begun to reign. He has begun to reign. And the time has come to judge his enemies. Those who are in rebellion against him. It's the time has come to judge the systems and the people and the demonic forces that are coming against his family. The thing that he loves. The time of his wrath, his complete wrath, is here. To have mercy on his family. And the time has come to reward those who are part of his family. To the one who conquers, I will give a white robe. To the one who conquers, I will, I will have him sit on the throne with me. To the one who conquers, I will give him a white stone with a name written on it that only the one who holds it knows. The time has come. The time has come for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. See, when God created this world, 
every molecule, every interaction was designed for human flourishing. But because of sin, because of our partnership with demonic entities, because of our pride setting up these systems in place of Yahweh that we serve and that are supported by demonic entities, we've destroyed the earth. I'm not just talking some, you know, tree hugger, you know, environmental thing. It's not what I'm talking about. We have destroyed the fabric of humanity through our sin and through our partnership with rebellious spiritual entities against Yahweh. And the time has come for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. And I left one verse out. I promise I'm going to close here. Verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. See, this image of the ark of the covenant is extremely powerful. Again, Revelation is the highway that connects the New Testament and the Old Testament. But there's something special about this ark. There's something special about this temple. See, when I was asking God, I I got stuck on that verse for a while because I felt like the Lord was breathing on it somehow. So I was asking God, all right, what what is it it about this verse that you want to communicate? And he, he immediately revealed to me that I was supposed to talk about the mercy seat of the ark. See, the mercy seat was, was the lid on top of the ark that was covered in gold. And there were two cherubim that stretched their wings out over the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was where the presence of God rested in the old temple system. And it was in the, the Holy of Holies. Nobody was able to enter the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. And on that day, what would happen is they would go through all of their ritual sacrifices and then after a a bunch of things that I'm not going to get into, the high priest would take a bowl of the blood of the goat that was sacrificed for the atonement of the sins of Israel. And he would enter the holiest of holies and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. See, even in the old Jewish system, they realized that it wasn't the sacrifices that saved them. It wasn't the sacrifices that atoned for the sins. They still had to sprinkle the blood of that sacrifice on the mercy seat so that God would have mercy on the Israelites. It was still God that saved them. It was still his mercy that saved them. So that was the importance of the mercy seat. to the people of Israel and in the old system. But this ark is special. This mercy seat is special. I'm going to read Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. I want you to listen here. But when Christ appeared as a high priest 
of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I'm going to read a little bit more. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. See, this mercy seat, this temple that was opened, is a heavenly one. It's not the temple that was made with human hands, not the temple that was made with human wood and human fabric and human gold. This one is special. Hebrews 9 tells us that Jesus entered the most holy place, not made by human hands, but a heavenly temple. And there he made atonement for the sins of the world. He didn't use the blood of goats or bulls. He used his own. He used his own blood. That is the temple. That is the ark that John is seeing here. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is it that that at the end of the seventh trumpet, we've just talked about all of this judgment and all of this calamity and the consequences of our sin. And then the seventh trumpet starts with, with the final victory of Yahweh, the final victory of his people and their participation with him. And directly after, God says, like, yes, it's time for you to participate with me in my victory. The image that comes, it says, yes, you're participating in that victory because of the blood of my son on the heavenly mercy seat. How cool is that? So John doesn't say it in here, but I believe that as John was having his vision and the temple was opened, just cl close your eyes and think about this. Put yourself in John's shoes right now. There's this vision of great victory. The time has finally come for God to reign and the temple in heaven is open. There's a heavenly ark. There's a heavenly mercy seat. And there's sprinkles of blood on that seat. And as John was, was going back in his head through this vision, and, and as he was writing these things down, I wonder if he just sat on that for a moment. And just like the elders, if he fell on his face and he thanked God. I wonder if he just sat in that place for a moment and just 
recalled that picture of the vision in his head. That's my Savior's blood. That's my friend's blood. The man that I walked with, the man that I served with, the man that I betrayed and I didn't serve perfectly, but he forgave me and he kept me in his family and he's even empowered me to, to, to serve him and declare his name throughout the earth. And yeah, it's landed me on these chains in Patmos, but my eyes are higher. It's my Savior's blood on that mercy seat. It's my Savior's blood. It's that blood that saves us. So as you are picturing that mercy seat in your head, what is, what is your reaction? Do you fall down in, in, in worship for the grace and the mercy of the blood that was sprinkled on that mercy seat? Where Yahweh sees that sacrifice of blood and he says, it is finished. I accept this sacrifice for the sins of you, Ike. I accept this sacrifice for the sins of you, Chris, for the sins of you, Jared, for the sins of you, Heather, for the sins of you, Carol, for the sins of you, Ashton. The sacrifice is acceptable in my sight. Enter into your rest. Enter into the victory that the blood of my son has bought for you. Welcome to the family. Come and join the feast of the bride. Or maybe when you see that blood, you realize that the bull of God's wrath has not been poured out yet. See, for those that believe in Jesus, the bull of God's wrath over their sin was satisfied on the cross. But maybe, maybe you haven't trusted in the cross. Maybe you haven't trusted in Jesus yet to save you from your sins. Maybe you're trying to still put the blood of goats on the mercy seat. Maybe you're still serving demonic principalities and powers. Maybe you're still serving your own flesh and your own desires. And you've set gods up against Yahweh. If that's you, let me tell you something this morning. That mercy seat is an invitation. God is beckoning you into his family, and he is saying, trust in that blood on the heavenly mercy seat, and I will wipe away all of your sins, all of your guilt, all of your shame. You can be part of my family. My wrath is satisfied on the cross if you choose to sit under it.
That blood is not just for your salvation, it's also for your healing. It's an invitation for freedom. It's an invitation for redemption. You have baggage in your past, that blood can redeem it. It's not going to change it. It's not going to eliminate it, but God can redeem it. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And some of you in this room have testimonies that are still in the dark because you haven't turned them over to Jesus yet. He wants to take that trauma. He wants to take that pain and turn it into a testimony of Jesus. The blood on that mercy seat is your invitation to do that. So I don't know how you need to respond this morning. But I want you to keep looking at that mercy seat. And either have it spur you to worship and to praise like you have never praised him before. Or that the kindness of the Lord and the patience of the Lord and the sacrifice of the Lord where Jesus sprinkled his blood on that mercy seat, that that kindness and that invitation would draw you to repentance. If that's you this morning, we just want to pray over you. Be bold and come up front. We can pray over you. We can help you through that. The Lord says, if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's supposed to be. Following Jesus is not easy. It requires that you sacrifice everything. But when you lay your life down, you gain everything and more in the kingdom of God. So maybe you need to lay your life down before the cross this morning. And except for the first time, the blood that was sprinkled on that mercy seat. So as the band plays behind us, you can just respond as the Lord calls you to. So Jesus, I just ask that you would move in this place. Holy Spirit, come and change our hearts. God, would you be merciful to us and reveal the parts of our lives that are still serving demonic systems? Maybe we trust in you and believe in you, but, but, our, but maybe our hope is in something other than you. God, reveal to it, reveal that to us right now so that we don't have to go through the, the, the physical torment of having our idols broken down in front of us. God, would you reveal that now by the power of your spirit? Would you have grace on us to reveal that to our eyes and give us grace to repent and move away from that wrath that is coming on our idols and coming on us and step underneath the powerful protection and love and grace of your cross. God, by the power of your spirit, would you reveal wherever we are serving our flesh. God, wherever we are unrepentant in our sexual immorality, in our thefts, in our idolatry, 
in our materialism and our own self-confidence and our own self-sufficiency and our own control. God, would you reveal that to us and we just, we lay it down before your cross and may the blood of Jesus cover it all. Jesus, thank you for the blood that you sprinkled on the mercy seat. Thank you for your sacrifice. We worship you, Jesus.